And the way in which I think of it is that they have, have captured control over the allocation of resources by our government. And they acquired this power uh, uh, the old-fashioned way. They bought it. <clears throat> and it's <clears throat> a long um, a story, really, that um, has mostly taken place over the last 10 years, or at least since the fall of the Berlin Wall. And uh, there was a general feeling that uh, capitalism and communism had been locked in a struggle, and capitalism had won. And um, people were writing books like The End of History, as if um, we'd finally gotten to where everybody wanted to be. And so there was a general sense that, you know, let, let a thousand flowers bloom, let everybody do what they want. So corporations began uh, to become far more aggressive in terms of the involvement they had in the process of government. And uh, their uh, success has been monumental, uh, up to the point where um, you are, we're confronted in, in several fields with the reality that uh, policymakers are, are limited even to the range of questions that they can bring up. That the, the only way we can discuss things like health care or defense or energy policy are within framework that has been set up by the industry. How does that so, really work? What are the levers of that power? I mean, is it campaign finance? Is it lobbying? I mean, what is the sort of stranglehold that those corporations have over the policy debate? Um, it's a combination of, of, of those two things, really, um, and also... Uh, their uh, imaginative and extensive use of nonprofit foundations, which uh, are basically set up like in the uh, like um, Exxon's pattern, with um, uh, trying to get a cadre of experts who would say that there is no global warming. Um, it's a very sophisticated effort. Of the the real problem is this: if you stop and think about politics, you think. You know, even going back a few years uh, when the man said, you know, a million here and a million there, and pretty soon you're talking real money. In most political campaigns up until the presidential campaigns, the last couple, you know, a million dollars is a lot of money. Um, for the largest corporations that I'm talking about, the ability of the principal executives to spend that kind of money on a whole range of activities that will affect um, government is um, around her. So you're talking about asymmetry. You're talking about the large companies with amounts of money that to them are not terribly significant, but which in the political context are absolutely defining. So it's a matter of scale more than anything else. And then, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the very imaginative use of this across the lobbying, um, campaign contribution, and charitable framework. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with the somewhat familiar, uh, famous now Lewis Powell memo of 1971 that he wrote to the Chamber of Commerce sort of advocating that corporations um, pool their resources to create a vast network of think tanks? Um, a lot of people look at that memo as sort of a milestone in the development of the network of nonprofits and so forth that you talk about. Are you familiar with that memo? I not only am familiar with it, um, I actually had a conversation with Lewis Powell about in the same week that he wrote the memorandum. 
I mean, was it important? People talk about that as an important moment. Yes, it, 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 it's almost, it, it, it is a, a document um, that it must be about the most uh, um, prescient and effective advice that any lawyer has given a business client in recent times. It's an extraordinary uh, grasp of power. It's hard for us now to imagine the circumstances in August of 1971, but at that time, um, business was losing everywhere, and they simply didn't have a, a, a grasp of Washington. And um, um, Powell, as a very civilized <clears throat> um, Virginian, um, had held most of the top positions in the American uh, legal community. He'd been head of the American Bar Association. He'd been head of the American trial lawyers. Um, and he also was a director of many, many, many companies. And in particular, he had been involved with the tobacco industry, which, which is, being a Virginian was not surprising. And the impact of the law on the tobacco industry was something that gave Powell a unique experience. Because when I was talking earlier about Exxon and charitable contributions um, to say that there was no global warming, well, Lewis Powell's legal work, um, um, you know, it, it, it must have corrupted every hospital and every university in the country by getting them to deny the reality that tobacco kills. So Lewis Powell um, was a, a real player in this game. And of course, as you know, within six weeks of my conversation with him and his writing this memo, he was nominated to the Supreme <laughs> Court. And the Senate was so fed up by that time as Nixon was trying, everybody said, you know, what do you want for a Supreme Court justice? Well, it came down to a political question. He wanted some Southerner, you know, because he was trying to get Southerners. It was the Southern feeling. That's how you expand the Republican Party, is you get more Southerners involved. So, and the first two people he put up were people called Hainsworth and Carswell. And I have to tell you, they collapsed in a burning fire. And uh, uh, there was something, uh, I think each of them were members of clubs that didn't take people of color or people of, of, of gender, and, um, you know, a variety of other phenomenon that were increasingly become thought as not appropriate for Supreme Court justices. And so when he got found Lewis Powell, everybody breathed a sigh of relief as here was this, you know, guy who'd been a real, a real leader in the bar. And ironically enough, um, during his confirmation hearing, uh, even though Jack Anderson had a copy of the memo, it did not come up, and he mm. was confirmed unanimously. Mm -hmm. So uh, another interesting thing about Powell is he was such a gentleman and so forth that his, his authorized biography written by his, his clerk uh, barely mentioned his involvement with business. Mm -hmm. And yet he perhaps was, I mean, I mean he was Moses, believe me. Um, um, he was the leader into the promised land for the business community. Uh, there should be a statue of Lewis Powell in front of the um, business roundtable offices, um, he is the man who led the way out of the out of out of the prison land. Well, t talk about some of the efforts that came out of that thinking. I mean, you've mentioned the business roundtable, and I'm sorry that Lisa's not on the call because we wanted to talk about Alec um, in this context too. But what were some of the things that that came out of that? Um, that thinking, that memo that he wrote, that are having an impact on public policy today. Well, I think I think at the time he wrote that, um, the idea of having a think tank um, was 
you know, something not terribly um, uh, important in Washington, D.C. Uh, they, they had um, the Brookings Institute, which had long been sort of establishment place for people to uh, go between elections or when they'd been beaten or something. But it was generally thought of as being very liberal. And, and just about simultaneous with the Powell Memorandum, we got very, very vigorous um, a conservative foundation starting the American Enterprise Institute, um, the Heritage Foundation, and uh, these have subsequently become enormously powerful in the life of the city. And, I mean, people like, for example, a former Attorney General Ed Meese, who is thought of as being the sort of arch um, spokesperson for the conservative legal community, uh, they simply find a home here um, a after they're out of office. And um, it's, it's provided a way for sort of a permanent sub-government for uh, those with a, a, a business-oriented conservative uh, disposition. Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther with the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is corporations in politics and public policy. Our guest is Robert Monks, shareholder activist, author, and corporate governance advisor. We are hoping to be joined later by Lisa Graves, Executive Director of the Center for Media and Democracy. Robert, talk about how um, you define government capture and how you think it narrows the conversation that we can have about public policy options. Let me, let me just take a couple of areas of, of, of recent um, government concern. Health care. Well, for, for us in Maine, um, we know, because of Canada being next door, that there is, in many countries, a predisposition to what is called single-payer uh, health care, and that uh, single-payer health care, many people think, has worked better than what we've had. Um, other people disagree, but it is one of the options that is very serious. There was not even the remotest opportunity, either for Hillary Clinton when uh, she was uh, bringing up the health care program in Bill Clinton's camp, uh, presidency, or for Barack Obama when he was bringing up a health care program to even suggest single payer. In other words, it, it wasn't an option. It wasn't even ever on any of the proposals that were made. It was assumed that the power of the insurance industry was so great that if Americans were going to have universal health care, they were going to have it through the medium of buying insurance. And it was not going to be an option for them to have a direct single payer, which is the case in, I'd say, most of the OECD countries. Well, that's health care. Um, in other fields, take, for example, campaign finance. Everybody I know of who has been involved in political campaigns and raising money, knows that there's an answer. And it's a pretty simple answer, and it's a very, um, uh, what should I say, it, it has a certain niceness to it. The, the, the thing that costs money in campaigns is television time. In theory, the airwaves belong to the people. The notion that the government, in determining licensing for people of airwaves, would say, we want to withhold a given number of hours for political purposes, and otherwise you can have your license 
for all of the time. So if the government took possession of some time and it said to political candidates, if you will agree to limit your expenditures for office, we will agree to give you a given number of hours of prime television time by which you can make yourself known to the voters. I've never met a candidate for office, and I've been meeting him since Wendell Wilkie, who wouldn't have accepted that. Hmm. And yet, when McCain made his proposal, the McCain-Feingold bill, that was the sort of the, the farthest leap, he didn't even mention it. And it, he said that you know, he couldn't because it was a non-starter. The power of the television networks was simply too strong. Mm-hmm. The television networks make a lot of money in selling political advertising. And that's the reason why we can't have a really very sensible, very decent resolution of this issue that has been racking this country and has just made such a mockery of the political process with the role of money and the amount of time that political people have to spend raising money. So in your view, it's, it's the ability of corporations to throw around a lot of money and the ability of their highly compensated executives to throw around a lot of money that really changes the framework in which discussions of public policy can take place. Is that right? You say it better than I. <laughs> Are you familiar with the term that public scientists sometimes use, clientism? Have you heard no. that? No. No, I haven't. Well, it's... Um, it, it's basically, I think, the concept that that when money corrupts government, it's not that sort of quid pro quo where money buys a vote, but it's more that once people get elected to office, their incumbency depends on their serving the interests of those who fund campaigns. And so public policy tips towards those clients um, and the profit-making motive of those clients who fund um, campaigns, and uh, I think that's the way the, the word is commonly used, and it's um, a way of talking about corruption that's not in the narrow framework of quid pro quo. But, um, you know, we don't have to spend more time on it because you're supposed to be talking and not me, so <laughs> I'll ask another question. Um, there but, but you know on that, uh, you know what you might do, you're really interesting in that regard, Maine's two senators are are, are, are absolutely honest people. And yet both of them are receiving enormous amounts of campaign money from huge companies that have very, very little to do with doing business in Maine. Mm-hmm. And it would be interesting, I mean, particularly in the case of Olympia Snow, who's now retiring, as to, you know, just to see what's happened to the system is why would Olympia Snow take money from someone who isn't doing much business in Maine when she doesn't need the money anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's developed a culture that would be worth looking into. And mm-hmm. we, we fortunately have people who, I mean, both Susan and Olympia are not corrupt. Right. Are not corruptible. I mean, they're first-class people. Well, so there was a, an opinion piece in the Sunday New York Times that, I'll just boil it down to one thing, said, Capitalist values are antithetical to democratic ones. The principles of Republican government require us to consider the interests of others, which capitalists are unable to do. I've also read in other places, though, that people think capitalism and democracy have to rise up together and that they're inseparable from each other. What do you think? Do you think capitalism and democracy go together, free enterprise and democracy go together, or do you think that there is 
and inherent tension between them that means they can't work together. You know, you, 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 you articulate so well. I'll just say your last clause says it. There is a tension between the two. I mean, the best single piece of literature I've read on the subject um, concludes by saying that a democracy and capitalism fit very difficultly together. Indeed, they don't fit at all. And uh, that's my conclusion. And the thing is that as a democracy, and uh, we, we accept capitalism, we accept corporations as the expression of capitalism, because on balance this has turned out to be a way to generate wealth. And we have assumed that if we can generate wealth on the economic side of things, we can make sure that that wealth is decently distributed on the political side of things. And that's sort of been the assumption under which we've operated these last 250 years. And, you know, most of the great political leaders in America, whether it's Jefferson or Lincoln, um, um, you know, or Woodrow Wilson or Teddy Roosevelt, have all expressed extreme doubt as to the capacity of our country to keep its political integrity in the face of the enormous power of the corporate community. I read something recently where George Bush was quoted as saying of ExxonMobil, here's the quote, nobody tells those guys what to do, close quote. When, yeah, I saw that too. So yeah. when, when corporations are these enormous multinationals and they're not American corporations, their money is unlimited, what can one national or state government do? What can we as citizens do to make sure that our, pu our public policy is bending to the good of our people, not of those multinationals? First, first thing we can do is to take that question that you just raised and try to make sure that it is raised in as many forums with as many people as possible, that people start thinking about it. Um, what, 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 what George Bush said is correct, um, it, and that plus a sentiment came out of a, a, a book that just got published by a man named Cole on ExxonMobil, and it was very clear. I mean, their view is our duty is to our shareholders. They're from all over the world. We don't belong to any one country. At the moment, we do not have a philosophy or a structure for the effective uh, supervision and regulation, to say nothing of discipline, of conduct of multinational companies. And it's going to be um, pretty soon too late. We're pretty soon we're going to have um, uh, separate power structures that will be competitive with each other. Uh, the, the economic power structure, which is uh, not uh, um, bounded by geographic limits, and of course the uh, political structure where the um, a political authority of, of a sovereign is, is generally limited to the boundaries of the country in which he rules. So we, 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 we're going to have to deal with that problem, and, and um, that's why the beginning point is to keep raising that question. I've um, heard some talk about revising corporate charters. I know corporate charters can be revoked. Um, can corporate charters be written so that um, corporations are mandated not only to maximize profit for their shareholders, but also to do good for the public? I mean, is that a practical strategy? No. Uh, it would be nice if it were. And uh, there are some very, very fine people who spend their lives on this. And um, um, 
as a practical matter, what happens is you've got a corporation organized and you've got a constituency for the corporation. And uh, just as sort of a matter of human dynamics, the number of people and the amount of money who are concerned with the corporation continuing are always going to be greater than the concern and the money and the time of the reformers. So let me remind our listeners that we're taught we're on WERUFM. This is the Democracy Forum. At this point, I think we'd like to invite listeners to join our conversation. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guest this morning is Robert Monks, shareholder, activist, author, and corporate advisor. And our topic today is corporations in politics and public policy. What do you think? If you have a question for our guest, you can join our conversation by calling 866-625-9378. We look forward to your questions or comments. So, Bob, let's talk some more about what we can do as citizens. You said raise the conversation um, in every venue that we can. What other specific measures do you think we should be advocating for that could help push back on corporate power? Frankly, the only way to push back on corporate power is through the corporate mechanism itself. From outside, the corporations will beat you. They've got more money. They can hire better lawyers. They can appeal more. I mean, Exxon still hasn't paid the fines of the Exxon Valdez uh, spill. Uh, You know, they're still appealing those um, um, uh, awards. And um, they've outlasted four presidents. And, and that's a pretty good example of how difficult it is from an outside person to in, impose any kind of authority on a corporation. There is the inveterate rule that a shareholder as the owner has fundamental power in a corporation. Now, that has been more theoretical than real, but there still is a vestige of shareholder power. And if we are going to deal with the problem of corporate power, it is going to have to be through the energizing and organizing and leadership of the shareholder community. And there is a fair amount of activity going on now that would make you somewhat optimistic. I mean, um, um, I'm not sure it's exactly the right way would like to have it happen, but we, we, we read the other day about um, this, uh, this fellow who, who um, is running a gas business, and it turns out he loans himself money, you know, in order to buy wells that he's granted by the uh, executives. Well, it now turns out that an active shareholder activist, Carl Icahn, has bought a lot of stock in the company, and Carl will stop it. I mean, mm-hmm. Carl will stop it, believe me. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing else would stop it, but Carl Icahn will stop it. Now, an interesting question will be, will some shareholder of J.P. Morgan come along now yeah. um, and, and simply say, look, I mean, the management that um, has lost all this money is the management that has been telling us that we don't need any regulation. <laughs> right. Oh, that's not credible, and do we want to continue with that management? Oddly enough, Morgan's mm-hmm. annual meeting is, is tomorrow, <laughs> but that's a little, it, it's, it's a little early, you know, Did to you raise the question, it, but... Right. It, but, but maybe somebody can. So the answer, Anne, really is it's got to be through, through energizing shareholders. And, and um, there's some prospect for hope there. Bob, we do have a caller on the line. Um, caller, give us your first name. Tell us where you live. Um, 
keep your comment brief, but you're on the air and go ahead with your question. Okay, thank you for the Democracy Forum. It's just excellent. I appreciate it. I really value uh, your speaker's uh, wisdom and knowledge about the uh, unfair influence of corporations on our country, but <clears throat> I take issue with um, the gentleman's comments that um, Olympia Snow and Susan Collins are up upstanding people. I, f I forget exactly the words he used. I mean, they both voted for the Iraqi war and the Bush tax cuts, which have really brought this country to its demise. But um, President Clinton, after he left office, said one of his biggest regrets uh, was that he didn't get involved in Darfur, and he said he'll have to live with that the rest of his life. I think I would like to hear that comment from Olympia Snow and Susan Collins, because one of the reasons I'm an activist is not one more child uh, on this earth should suffer from this first world power and elite corruption. And there's been an amazing epidemic of leukemia and, and cancer in Iraq and Afghanistan, which never even gets addressed due to our using um, depleted uranium on our on our weapons and and um, tanks. And this is something that doesn't get out. And you know, the Iraqi people did not deserve um, our bombing. And I remember the first night of the bombing; the dogs were barking. Children are crying, and um, I would like to hear them say that they regret their vote, knowing that now knowing that the lies were told to get us into that war. Thanks so for I, your comment, Bob. Would you like to um, respond to that? And uh, yeah, I really would. No, I I, I, I resonate. I, I don't agree with everything Olympia and Susan have done by any means, but um, um, I, I want to recommend to you if you haven't read it, um, a very very recent book by Rachel Maddow. You know who I mean? Mm-hmm. She's a journalist with MSNBC, and and um, she is she's written a book recently about about the problem of being war dominated. Um, it isn't just corporate dominated; it's military industrial complex dominated country, and the implications that's had on people's health. And I, I just commend it to you utterly, as it's a really really fine piece of work. She's very um, I, I, I like her television program, but uh, but I, I was amazed. Um, I don't know why one should be, but uh, she's a very, very fine writer. It's an interesting book. It looks like we have Rachel another Maddow. another caller. Um, give us your first name. Tell us where you live. You're on the air. Go ahead with your question or comment. Good morning. This is Yo in Tremont. You made an interesting remark about how there will always be more interest in supporting corporate structure than there will be in regulating it. And that sort of indicates to me that corporate structuring is the greater good for which everyone has been working so hard all these years because it amasses wealth, and that is a basic human drive, I suppose. But what I'm not hearing is that corporate structuring also amasses ill. That's to say the degradation of the environment, eternal wars, impoverishment of large numbers of people, and the accumulation of wealth is on the other end of a balance of ilth. And the more wealth is accumulated, the more ilth is also accumulated. And could this mean that perhaps corporate structuring is not the greatest good for which we would want to work? 
That's a thank good you point. so much for putting on this program, and thanks to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Go ahead, Bob. I've heard people talk about corporations as externalizing machines, and that was kind of what our caller was asking about. What's your view? Well, I wrote a book once, and I said a corporation is like a shark. It's purpose-built. And, um, and a, a corporation is purpose-built to externalize liabilities. And I was going to a- answer the gentleman by saying that um, earlier on, we talked about wealth creation as an energy that was, you know, on balance, we'd taken a chance with the uh, potential problems of corporations by saying that the economics of, of, of wealth uh, could be um, legitimated by political control. One of the elements that has been overlooked has been the way in which corporations are allowed to account for their impact on society. So a promising path here to try and harmonize what the gentleman correctly points out is a a pretty miserable balance of wealth versus ills is to require that corporations take into account the full cost of their functioning. Uh, Take, for example, a business in which I was involved as a young man, coal mining. It's virtually impossible to imagine that coal would be a competitive uh, fuel if coal miners uh, or coal mining companies were required to account for its real cost. Uh, the reality is that no, no human being should be required to work underground digging coal. And if you send people underground to dig coal, they're going to die. They're going to be seriously physically affected. Uh, they're going to be psychologically very affected. And the cost of that would simply be, just in, 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 in inhuman terms, in economic terms, much too high. And you wouldn't have any coal mining. Mm-hmm. Now, people would say, my God, you can't do that. The, the state of West Virginia go out of business and Pennsylvania would collapse. I'd say, look, <clears throat> if you're going to have a business-based system, you have to start from the point of view that business cannot have a hostile impact on the world in which it exists. And in order for that to occur, its impact has to be truly priced and cost and put into the, it, it, put into the equation. It might therefore be that many things that we now buy because they're fun, we think, and because they seem to improve our lives, we wouldn't have. Because once you'd gone down the entire chain of uh, what are the environmental impacts to create those products, just taking the environment as one of the elements of impact, uh, the conclusion would be irresistible. They'd be too expensive. You yeah. wouldn't do it. Looks well, like once you start having expense as a social value rather than just a pure... I mean, I mean, who picked accounting anyway? Who legitimated them to say what was a cost? Yeah. Looks like we have another caller. Um, give us your first name. Tell us where you live. Go ahead with a brief question or comment. You're on the air. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Fred in St. George. Um, my observation about the corporations is that they're based, uh, based on fear, i.e., I win, you lose, winner take all, and a new structure. Um, is is one that's going to succeed is uh you know based on love and sharing and compassion and whether it you know the co-op model or something
something else, uh, you know, that's to me is the structure that needs to replace the uh, corporate model. What do you think, Bob? Is there an alternative structure? Well, I, I, I have to I have to confess that I'm the um, I'm the son of a clergyman, and so I've I've had to think about whether man was good or man was evil for you know ever since I was conscious, and I I, I haven't really gotten um, to change my view that essentially the good Lord put us on Earth a fairly miserable species, and um, I, I I don't feel that uh, human nature. Um, fundamentally can be relied on and I think therefore that a, a that while one would want to encourage and to enhance and to protect love and sharing based systems un, unless there is some psychopharmacology or, or some method of um, uh, DNA transplant dealing with the human uh, species that we have I don't believe those will be competitive with corporations or people's uh, energy and attention. Ladies and gentlemen, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU Community Radio. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guest this morning is Bob Monks, shareholder, activist, author, and corporate governance advisor. And our topic today is corporations in politics and public policy. What do you think? If you have a question for our guest, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866 625-9378 or locally here in Orland at 469-0500. Bob, you start, you've talked about a few different measures that we can take to push back and I'm interested to continue to explore that. We've talked about raising this question in every public venue we can. We've talked about shareholder activism. We've talked about requiring corporations to internalize the cost of their action. I guess, how would that work? Would the government send a bill for um, some of these externalized costs? Or, I mean, practically... Oh, I, 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 mercifully, <laughs> um, because of the problem of corporations only having a geographic impact on multinational companies, and, you know, people like Rupert Murdoch, you know, keep their books in about eight different countries, and they, they, they pick the one that works the best. Mm -hmm. um, the, the only way to do it really is to have a, 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 a global accounting system. And um, there's a lot of work being done on that, and they're making more progress on that than on a lot of other aspects of, of corporate power. And uh, it, it, would, it would be a generally accepted accounting practice globally that would be the only way to do this. Who's working on that? If people that, that are listening to this program would like to learn more or get involved in that. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what to, what to look for. I mean, it's a, it's a lovely name to look for, Prince Charles Charitable Trust. One of Prince Charles's um, projects is this holistic global accounting. And, and a large enterprise is going on, on, you know, with his sponsorship in England, which is where I think most of the um, um, thinking on this is now centered. What, what's your view of the promise or lack thereof for campaign finance reform here in the States? Well, it's very grim at the moment. I mean, I, mean, uh, I, I, I went to a uh, meeting that my daughter-in-law was sponsoring for the president about a month ago here in Portland, and um, someone said, uh, to him, um, what, what, do you, what are the chances of changing Citizens United? President paused, looked the man in the eye, and said, none. <laughs> oh, my God. 
God, what an answer. You know, I mean, a politician has given you a one-word answer that you don't want to hear. But uh, I've had some familiarity with his, with his viewpoint, of course, and for him, it's, a, it's not only a political insult, it's a personal insult, because he is a very, very qualified, distinguished constitutional law scholar. And so not only is his political life tied up in this, but his intellectual heritage is insulted by it as well. Um, the, the, and, and he then went on to say the only thing that we can do is, is to um, amend the Constitution, which is a, a, a parlous job. I mean, it's, it can't, it's very difficult to get the Constitution amended, and when you have as much opposition as we would likely have on such a thing, it's, it's hard to imagine that actually taking place. So the, um, the only way I think we're going to be able to deal with the impact of a Supreme Court uh, decision that basically says there's no restrictions on what people can give or spend in politics is to attack the corporate side. And the only way to do that is, again, through the shareholders and how the shareholders say, and I don't know many people who are shareholders of companies who want to have their companies act as a part of a process that's destroying the legitimacy of our society. Um, and have them create standards and accountability within the corporation for what kind of contributions will be allowed, what kind of disclosures will be required, what kind of approvals will be necessary. Mm -hmm. So I think there's some chance to deal with the corporate side of this, mm -hmm. um, and that would be a good place to start. It looks like we have another caller. Uh, give us your first name. Tell us where you live. You're on the air. Go ahead. Thanks. Uh, this is David. I'm calling from Brooklyn. Um, so uh, I'm I'm going to want to continue in the direction uh, Yo was going. I uh, I remember at the beginning of the show uh, the speaker was expressing a certain skepticism about the ability of democracy and capitalism to coexist. Uh, a viewpoint with which I hardly agree. Uh, but now I think I'm hearing him saying that the only way we can uh, sensibly uh, uh, transform the uh, corporate paradigm is through uh, uh, participation in it. I do not agree, and I also do not agree with sort of an ancillary uh, 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 proposition of his that human beings are basically a bad act. I think human beings are not basically a bad act, and I think that uh, given the fact that there are more of us than there are of corporations, uh, if we can accept that fact head-on, as Michael Moore was urging us to do in a recent talk about uh, the 99%, which I happened to hear it was also aired on the, the uh, MPBN, so I think a lot of folks heard it. Uh, we are really all part of the 99%. I mean, that is true. There's only 1% of us that isn't. And to, uh, to more or less dismiss the possibility of the 99% of us being able to act in concert with each other in order to stop this uh, 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 self-willed and, and egocentric cancer from predominating in our world to its infinite destruction... Uh, we're going to have to learn how to act together as individuals and how to respect each other as uh, functioning and, and 
capable individuals uh, long enough for us to be able to solicit participation, group participation, to encourage group participation by learning how to talk to our neighbors, uh, learning before we totally forget and lose ourselves in the haze of electronic emails, how to talk to the guy down the road. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much, David. What do you think about that, Bob, the promise of collective action? I I, I think I'm going to vote for David when he runs for office. (laughs) Uh, I, I, and, and I, I, I was going to suggest to David, I was going to suggest David, I was going to suggest to you, I was going to suggest to you, David, a, a, a film you might like to see. I don't know if you've seen a movie called The Corporation. Well, it's actually on a disc, so maybe you can... I don't even have a, time a, a computer. It, you know, it, it, actually, I think it just aired in Blue Hill here last week. I'm, I'm, it? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad it was in Blue Hill, but I couldn't. I didn't have enough well, gasoline. It, 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 it deals with a number of the themes you're talking about, I think, very effectively. And um, and I, I, you know, God bless you. You know, I, I think your your energy is a very healthy one, and our society will be the better for the expression of it. Bob, let's talk a little bit more about where people can go to. We did a show on constitutional amendments a couple months ago, and um, I know that that's a very daunting challenge. But we are here to encourage citizen participation, so I want to give you another chance to talk about to talk to our listeners about where they can go to join the effort to push push back on this and make sure we've fully vetted all the opportunities that you have in mind. Um, I, I, I've been thinking about the issue for a long time, and at the risk of becoming very boring, mm-hmm. I, I've become sort of a one-note willy. And um, so I'll, I'll stay on that one note. And the one note I'm involved with is the extent to which corporations are the problem or a part of the problem. And I constantly think about how people, almost everybody, uh, not everybody, but say, Half of the Americans have some kind of interest in companies through their pension plans, their savings plans, um, one form or another. And the process of being involved as a shareholder has certain promise that is, in a sense, the system is very vulnerable to an individual who wants to be active. The reason why is that the directors who are elected and the officers have a legally defined duty to be trustees, in effect, for the shareholders. Now, nobody really knows what a court is going to do when they're confronted with something like a shareholder saying, this person has conducted themselves in such a way as to hurt me and to hurt my corporation, and therefore I want you to stop it. Uh, There's lots of effort in this direction, but this is a way in which people actually can get expression. A horrible institution are derivative shareholder actions, whereby shareholders act on behalf of the whole class in order to get attention. I say horrible because they're inefficient, but they're the only thing we really have and therefore, in a way, they're um, you know, pretty beloved because they empower the meanest of us, and it's a possibility for the meanest of us as a shareholder to get act in the interest of the whole class of owners 
to require that the managers accommodate their uh, direction of the company to accord with human welfare. Has that been working? I mean, we know that the Rockefeller family has been um, working as shareholder activists with Exxon. Is th- is that does that work? You know, it, 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 it's I I I wouldn't say yes. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I I believe that it is evolving into a pattern. I mentioned to you earlier how um, the uh, gas company um, has been. Um, a, a, confronted by a shareholder, and I raised the prospect of Morgan. Uh, Exxon happens to be about the most difficult um, challenge of all of them, and so I wouldn't hold it against um, the family for their efforts to uh, reform their ancestors' um, doing, um, because that's a tough nut to crack. But I think other ones can be done, and Exxon may in its time change. It looks like we're running out of time this morning. Do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners, Bob? Yeah. I think that the uh, seeming contradiction of corporations and democracy is not a pro- is not in practice as unacceptable a conclusion as one might think. In fact, it is entirely reasonable to expect that over time our political system will make demands of the corporate system that give a sense of democratic involvement, of holistic concerns. Uh, We are now, I fear, just passing at the bottom of a period of time where public consciousness and public involvement is close to an all-time low and where government uh, consciousness of uh, the human agenda is also at an all-time low. Thank you so much. We are out of time. Thank you, Bob, for being our guest You're this welcome. morning. Thank you. We really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you to Kathy and Waldo, who made an additional gift to WERU during this hour. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Joel Mann, our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners and those who called in. If you have a suggestion for a topic or for guests on a future Democracy Forum or to join the League of Women Voters, email us at lwvme at gwi.net or call the League of Women Voters at 622-0256. Just a note that our next broadcast will be on the third Monday in June. That will be June 18th. We look forward to seeing you, hearing you here then. Thank you very much.